Tired of feeling like a pawn in a world run by the devil? Overwhelmed by the constant barrage of negative influences from this world? We invite you to join us at the 2023 Men's Gathering, where we are excited to welcome the mad Christian himself, Reverend Jonathan Fisk. Close to 150 men will descend upon Lakeview Villages in Seymour, Indiana, the weekend after Easter, April 13th to the 16th. We hope you can join us for a relaxing weekend where our brotherhood is strengthened and new friends are made every year. Visit our website at mensgathering.us for more information and to register. Find us on Facebook for additional info leading up to the event. We are expecting a full crowd this year, so make sure to register early to reserve your spot. We hope you'll join us as we learn how to stop the white noise at the 2023 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. Dr. Kinney's, my life's been going wonderful, and as a result, I did not give any time to thinking about this moment. Aside from, I did glance at hour two to see what we're doing later today that they'll get a couple weeks from now as we're recording. Uh, the Dark Ages is already upon us. That that inspired me. I'm very excited about that. But my guess is... <laughs> My guess is we can kind of we can lean in that direction as yeah. we we begin a third city dissection as emblem of American decline, having looked at Chicago and San Francisco. Um, you know, someone could make the argument that that Los Angeles, but we did Los Angeles, we did Hollywood, right? So, we so did. here here comes here comes New York City, the uh, center of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Certainly, according to its own residents, generally speaking, yes. I have, despite growing up in a rural area, I have never met people more parochial than uh, not even natives of New York City so much as people who chose to live there. So people born there, you can understand if they're a little bit parochial, but people who choose to live there and then also act like it's the only place that's ever existed, despite the fact that they spent the first 18 years of their life in Dayton, Ohio, or Shreveport, Louisiana. I've never met people more parochial than New Yorkers. <laughs> so it it is the center of the world in that I gotta sense. I got to say, that's saying something, given the fact that you're a pastor in the LCMS. Really? Right, right there. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you whatever, you know, like when... When you're from a small town, there's a sense in which, yes, it's the only thing in the world. There's also a sense in which you're aware that you don't matter. Or if you're from a a second tier city or a city that doesn't have, you know, multiple teams in every major sports league for every sport. Right. You're aware that, that you're not New York or L.A. When you're from, maybe even when you're from Chicago or L.A., you're aware that you're not New York. The thing about New York is that it creates a certain parochialism that that really cannot exist anywhere else in the United States because everywhere else in the United States is aware that New York exists. So New York has a function there as what is the literal meaning of metropolis, which is which is a world city. And the idea of a metropolis struggles to exist in the United States simply because we are so big and we have so many other places around which people's lives revolve. So if you go to a different part of the country and you say, I'm going into the city today, of course, people in Long Island or Westchester County, New York, mean New York City, but somebody in Eastern Kansas might be might mean Kansas City, right? So that's different from a country like, especially France or Britain, where the metropolis, Paris and London, respectively, dwarfs everything else. New York dwarfs other things in terms of population. I mean, it, the things to which it is comparable in size are in other countries, you know, Tokyo, Mexico City. But because of the size of America, both demographically and geographically, it doesn't have quite the status that I think it maybe wants or aspires to or presumes because of the size of the United States. And what we're going to talk about over the next two weeks is how that's actually one of the absolute best things for our future, that we don't have an actually overwhelmingly dominant metropolis like many other industrialized countries do. I can see that. Um, the Am I getting at this idea, your words, cities you will always have with you? 
when I when I ask, is the relationship of the city as a historic sociopolitical reality of man to social evil effectively the same as the relationship of the body to sin? To say that the city is God's design from creation as what man is in community, but that it is indistinguishable in the fallen order that we exist in from the corruption of sin's uh, decay. And as such, the city is kind of always an emblem of fall, brokenness, evil, um, in the way that man really kind of is too. Not unredeemable, right. but but in some ways not going to be seen in redemption, right, until the city of God comes, which it has in Jesus, and we can get into that. But like, you know what I'm saying? No? I know what you, yeah, I know what you're saying, because when you think about cities in the Bible, you have visions of perfect cities or cities of paradise, such as the city set on a hill, such as the Jerusalem, which is above, which is free, which is our mother, a picture of the church. And that Jerusalem descends at the last in order to occupy the earth and its gates shall never be shut. But such a city is not found on the earth. So cities are mostly both biblically and historically concentrations of evil because they're concentrations of mankind. So they are they are necessary in the sense that nothing can be, I mean, for God to dwell permanently with his people before the incarnation, it is necessary to have a city because it's necessary to have a place that is central to which talent and all things flow. But this is not, in fact, his abiding home, and he chooses an abiding home in human flesh, which makes every city, I mean, indeed, it makes every place. But see, the issue is when you're, when you're from Podunk, you you are generally not prone to the same degree of pride that people from cities and certainly from metropolises are to which they are prone about where they're from. Because when you're from Podunk, you just don't have the same illusions about where you're from. You have other problems, no doubt about it. It's just that cities as concentrations of human effort, pride, beauty have a certain temptation. So that I, I would say it's maybe comparable to being given a great deal of wealth or being given a great deal of beauty or a great deal of intelligence or other things that people desire and which are actually good things. But to whom much is given, much is also required. So more is on the line. I mean, if there is a massive scandal at the sheriff's department in Podunk County, it only matters for the you know, 17,000 odd people that live in that county, maybe both senses of the word, 17,000 odd people. If something goes drastically wrong in New York City, it could affect and, and generally does affect the entire United States, even though it is not the same degree of magnitude relative to the rest of the country, like like London or like Paris. So cities cities are necessary for human development, for flourishing, they're essential even to the etymology of the word civilization. We said civitas is a city. A civilization is a way of human existence built around cities and built by and through cities. The reason I said cities you always have with you in the notes for today is partly because I find a hatred of cities which is very understandable among a lot of people, especially on the right, politically and theologically. It's not just that I find that to be impolitic or unwise, like we said, especially in the Chicago episodes. So, you know, the Republican Party of Illinois is perfectly free to abandon the city of Chicago politically and Cook County, even at this point, politically. They're not free thereby to maintain control of the state of Illinois, having done so. It's not just that it's impolitic to abandon cities. It's that it's actually sort of you're you're seeding all the dominant ground in a battle right off the bat. You just you're just letting it go. 
you know. And in the case of New York City, the the people that have tried to reclaim cities often who were in any sense on any kind of right of something, of a spectrum, theologically, politically, culturally, whatever, often end up when they try to retake that ground, feeling so overwhelmed that they generally will capitulate. So there has been, for instance, a, a controversy within the Presbyterian Church of America for years and years and years and years at this point, because Tim Keller entered New York City in, I want to say, 1989, in order to plant Redeemer Church. And he has had women deacons, which is sort of a basic no-no for Presbyterians from the first. Okay. So this idea that cities basically set their own rules and everything else bows before their norms, whether you're talking about theology or politics or whatever else, people find that irksome. And I and I totally understand why, because then there's also an arrogance like, well, you just don't understand what it's like here. Here's why I have to do this. And you get a platform because you are a pastor or you are a politician or you are whatever in a big prestigious place everyone has heard of. That matters a lot more than the pastor in West Seneca which is also a place in New York, just the state, not the city. So these these things, you know, they're kind of like, I, I get why people hate them and I get why people want to just totally abandon them. I think knowing nothing about them is the absolute dumbest thing you could do. I think maybe second to that is just completely abandoning them to everyone who is changing your society in a direction, whatever that direction or whatever the issue who is changing your society and you say, go ahead, take the power, go to the place where all financial control and lots of other things is concentrated and you can just have that. And I'm going to, you know, so you have the high, you have the high dry ground and you can see all the country and you can attack me from there. And maybe you can just, you know, fire at me. You don't even have to charge me. I'll go stand down here in the swamp and, um, take the low ground and have no advantage and no resources, but at least I won't be in the city anymore. So it's like the, the group, whether it's the, whether it's a church or whether it's a political party or whatever it is that abandons the city is just giving up unless it maintains things that are extremely hard to maintain in modern America. So Republicans in New York state used to control basically every County with the exception of the counties comprising New York City, once they lost that, they basically lost the state. Same thing with Republicans in Illinois. So you're just giving up a lot. And the idea that everyone's just going to give up on it and we're still going to be okay, very, very, very hard to maintain, I think probably impossible. So cities you will always have with you, if that's true, you need to learn not only about them, but also I think some of us need to learn how to navigate in them while remaining coherent, faithful, sensible, all the rest. Well, we remain coherent. That 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 is that is the key as Babel descends. So I think maybe what you you touched on there, if not went directly at, is something that uh I I can't tell if I've picked this up in our in our Discord crowd, uh in the brief history power kind of fandom world. But it's almost like there's a tendency to to merge a a tacit rejection of modern overreach on all manner of things sure with the city and to think that's the same thing yeah and so agrarian is just the answer to modernism which no it's not really the opposite pole <laughs> it's not really the opposite pole at all ancient cities were there too right and so so what we're getting at here a little bit is is the idea that it's not that Christians need the city. Uh, humanity is going to have cities. And that for Christianity to say, right. well, part of the essence of Christianity is the abandonment of the city. Um, well, I need more Bible on that before we're going to do that. You, you know, we don't have to go there. You're going to advocate why we can't do it, why, we, why we, must, we must stay there, even when cities take different forms. Like you're, you're going to talk about Virginia here, right? And, and how you know, a city-state <laughs> is a city-state. There's a reason the ancient world had those too. That's right. Yeah. And we're not we're not talking about any specific scale. I mean, 
this the scale of modern New York City is, or the scale of Tokyo, or the scale of Mexico City, is is not the precise question here. It is it is whether you can have a civilization, Western civilization, even without cities. And the historically based answer, that is the empirical answer, is no, you can't. The exceptions involve. And I'm going to talk about probably the the major American historical exception to this. The exceptions all involve living off some city somewhere else. So your your best example of a, an American society that has some level of cultivation, influence, change, capacity for exploration is colonial Virginia. And Virginia maybe down even to the Civil War. Okay. Virginia has really up to the Civil War only one major city, and that is Richmond. And relative to all other American cities, it's it's really not much, which will become a giant problem for the Confederacy. Why am I bringing up <laughs> Virginia? Apparently, we're talking about New York City. I'm bringing it up because it's your best counterexample to New York City specifically, but to people trying to have purely agrarian societies. And Virginia is like that because of the spread, not so much of what you might imagine as Thomas Jefferson's ideal of, you know, small farms. Those farms in American history are all almost exclusively peopled by white families. Virginia is the way it is because of plantation agriculture, right? And so the the use of slavery or later on at similar scales with certain forms of crops, that's going to be dependent either on enormous mechanization like in the Midwest today or on illegal immigration, right? Remember, immigration is just kind of on a basic level, it's just a flow necessary for labor forces, especially to keep wages down, 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 down. So- Virginia doesn't develop in the same way that a state with somewhat similar climate like Maryland develops because it develops a much larger sector for plantation agriculture and you know slave populations to staff those plantations. Virginia is in colonial times completely dependent on London for education, for immigration into especially its gentry where the youngest son of many noble families is going to come to Virginia instead of... So it's the, it's the only American state that has anything like a, a recreation of English nobility and, and even some actual English nobility. It's going to have unending tension between different sectors of rural people. So what becomes West Virginia... You know, My ancestors didn't own slaves because they lived in what became West Virginia. First, it was Virginia. Is that just because it's all rural doesn't mean everyone's going to get along or that the society will be static. It means that you will simply have different political problems than if you have a real city. It doesn't develop a major city because it doesn't need to, because it sort of outsources the functions that cities provide, like cultivation of the arts, supply of goods that you cannot produce on your own, and on and on and on. First, it gets us from London, and they get, and then it gets them from a combination of Philadelphia, Charleston, and New York City. So you'll find, especially before the Civil War, tons and tons of Virginia aristocrats going to Philadelphia or Newport, Rhode Island, or even Boston or New York City for the summer, making those contacts, you know, cultivating business relationships. So when you don't have your own city, but you are trying to live at some level of relatively high human development, unlike, say, for example, what becomes West Virginia, which is which is and remains desperately poor relative to the rest of Virginia, right? You're going to use somebody else's city. <laughs> it's it's not you, you can't actually have a civilization without having <laughs> without having a city. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm not even discussing like what what is Williamsburg in colonial Virginia relative to all other places, but that high level that high standard of living at least for the gentry in Virginia is maintained by a much wider network of human life than they would have needed if they had, for instance, their own city or if what becomes Washington, D.C. were larger 
than it was up until the 20th century or whatever, right? So cities you will always have with you. But in addition to that, you're not going to escape the problems that like if you live in Illinois, you you associate with Chicago. So you're some some click of people who understand politics better than you are probably going to control your politics. <laughs> if you're not involved or you are, but you don't know what you're doing or whatever. I This is, I mean, power can be an overused term and in some ways it's a limiting term, but if you just think of it as the capacity to get things done, there will be people who will both have that and want it and therefore desperately want to hold on to it in any society because what we're talking about is not just a function of cities or population concentrations. Plenty of people in New York City have absolutely no power even over their own lives. They don't just magically obtain power by living inside one of the five boroughs. The problem here is that we're talking about the hearts of men. The reason cities seem to be different or especially influential is because the hearts of men find more for themselves to utilize and to appropriate in and through a city. That's the difference. Whereas there's just less available for you to utilize and appropriate in a rural area. And I'm saying urban and rural. I'm not really talking about the suburbs because I think of the suburbs as basically just like colonial Virginia. They really cannot exist without the metropolitan areas that they are inside of, right? So, I mean, my the suburb where I live, which is right next to Denver, Colorado, is on its own the fourth largest city in Colorado. It could not survive economically for very long without the city of Denver. That's just the way it goes. So I have more space or it's more pleasant or whatever, or the schools are safer, all these reasons that suburban living has sprung up, particularly in the past 100 years. But suburbs are kind of like colonial Virginia. It's You're sort of pretending you don't need a city. <laughs> You know, or or you're escaping the city or you're getting away from those things, but you will in fact use that city as the basis for your existence. So I think functionally, the real really the only two forms of human organization that can endure on their own are going to be cities or rural areas. Suburbs are, I think, are just lower density versions of city. Right. Um cer- certainly growing up in a rural area, suburban kids also don't know how to change the oil on their cars just like city kids, right? But they understand better things like, you know, shopping at nice places and stuff that rural kids don't know. <laughs> so the difference between urban and suburban matters relatively little in the whole scheme of they're, things. They're kind of like, I mean, I don't know how much this really happened in medieval worlds in terms of um, walls existed around cities in order to protect the people. And if you built outside the wall, you were in more danger. Right. But some cities are so successful, the reach goes so far that, in fact, towns spring up just on the other side of the wall over time. Um, right. That's that's the suburbs. It's just it's the city outside the walls. And yeah. it's a little less safe in some ways, more fragile in some ways. Um, in other ways, it's it's maybe safer. You can flee if another army comes. Right. But um, yeah, uh, suburbia as a as a phenomena is its own just kind of sad commentary on modernism, wishing it could come up come up with something new and ultimately failing to do so just coming up with the worst version of what we already had so and yeah i'm glad you laugh but it's it's there's a there's the cynic at its best in me right there um uh controlling the city then uh or not abandoning the ground i like the way that way of thinking about it yeah i like thinking about cities as concentrations of men and then don't abandon the ground where the men are concentrated if your goal is good Right. Like you, you want to be the good man, the good people, the good nation, the good, whatever, then you're not going to, you're not going to just give up. (laughs) Right. And the idea that we're going to somehow, I think this is what you're pushing on, that we're going to be able to retreat to this position of pure security from which in our private orthodoxy, we shall what breed out the end of the cities around us. Um, It's a nice kind of video game answer, uh, but it, it really... Uh, it, it ignores the reality of the way God made man to operate and that there is nothing biblically prohibiting our gradually figuring out how to be, as Christians, 
massively influential in the cities in such a way so as to propagate the Christian message and maybe even, you know, build a thing someone would someday call Christendom, which, yeah, they did it already. It fell apart. Yeah. And here we are, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. And Christend Christendom involves cities. That's where you find your major and astonishing cathedrals. The failure to maintain control over cities, there are different ways you can talk about this relative to Christianity, but let's just talk about it politically for today's purposes, is that one of the tragedies really for the Confederate States of America is that the states that they do get to secede have relative to the North, nothing in them. <laughs> and that's just the cold hard truth. So the cities that they have that have some productive capacity are, are largely Richmond and New Orleans and Charleston. And as to productive capacity, you're you're mostly talking about Richmond in that case. They don't get Baltimore, which was Baltimore was sort of like the I don't know, the Miami of the early 19th century. It was extremely prosperous and extremely quickly growing. Everybody wanted to move to Baltimore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the way it was called mob town. Not 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 like the mob like we think of it post Francis Ford Coppola, but like just a crazy place, a wild place where roaming bands of otherwise unattached young men would, uh, you know, fight with each other at night. So gangs of New York. Hey, when you're get, a jet, you're a jet all the way, man. Yeah, right. Yeah, kind of <laughs> like that. And so, but they didn't get Maryland to secede. Hmm. And so it really didn't matter so much that what becomes West Virginia in 1864 splits off. It matters that Maryland doesn't come with them. It's also why the first Union casualty of the Civil War happens in Baltimore is because the Union immediately ships men to Baltimore to secure it. So they don't get that. So they they have relatively little productive capacity. This is a question you could ask in kind of a post-industrial America generally is, can we win a war? Could we actually produce the things that we need oh, man. to win a war? Can we produce right? the things we need just to sustain what we're doing right now? Is, right. I mean, forget the war. Right. The, the, and, and imagine a war where they're attacking. I mean, it it, it would right. on our shore. We're we're dead in the yep. water, man. Yep. So the Confederacy is is in that is in that place to begin with. So it has a certain homogeneously agrarian character, which is going to help because they need to conscript basically all white males of anything resembling fighting age eventually. But they really cannot produce enough to withstand the onslaught from the North. So whatever you know, different moral and ideological and philosophical facets there are to our civil war, it's, it's a situation where somewhat like Russia versus Ukraine, if this goes on long enough, barring some completely unforeseen thing, you know who's going to win. And that's that's regardless, actually, of the fact that New York City, New York City, not New York State, the city is is rather disloyal to the Union. Okay? So their, their major city, it had been the largest city in the United States since I want to say 1810 is when it surpasses Philadelphia and never looks back. New York City is not terribly loyal to the Union or helpful. There are draft riots in New York City. New York City is controlled by Democrats throughout the war, despite generally Republicans running all of the rest of New York State and pretty much the entire North throughout the Civil War. New York City can get away with that because it just matters so much economically. It's not going to be drastically punished. But there are, I mean, not, not exactly in a completely joking way, there are discussions of New York City seceding during the Civil War, becoming a city-state and allying itself with the Confederacy. I mean... This never got to the level of like a, a like a public vote, but it was certainly widely and, and openly discussed and resistance to the war effort was pretty widespread. The reason being New York City stood n to gain nothing from Southern agriculture being shut down, embargoed, blockaded, being a port city. It was very, it was much more reliant on the South than it was on, say, Schenectady or Buffalo for its well-being. So 
New York City remains controlled by the Union, obviously, despite its own restiveness. And the Confederacy has nothing to match it or to match Boston or Philadelphia or Chicago or anything else. And so the Confederacy ends up basically losing a war event that's eventually a war of attrition. They cannot compete with the numbers, but also the materiel that the North is able to field. I mean, so that's, that's, I mean, I, I have every agrarian impulse too, like many of the listeners. And unlike some of them, I actually grew up in a rural area. Nonetheless, that's not all it takes to win or to succeed. And if you're trying to save Western civilization, you know, Memorial Press is doing it one mind at a time um, or whatever. They didn't pay me to say that. Whatever you're trying to save, you you can't really save it in a sustainable long-term way, maybe not even for more than four years without cities. And but but if you have control of cities, you can even you can even withstand they're not really agreeing with you or going along with you entirely, like New York City did to the Union in the Civil War, and you'll still be fine. So if you if you can control cities, you can hold pretty much everything else long term. All right. So we already touched on the the origin of New York City's dominance a, a touch. Did you want to do more on bit. that? Did you want to do more? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the, the reason the population surpasses Philadelphia is because New York, unlike Philadelphia, is much closer to the ocean. And so it 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 gets ahead first in shipping. But the thing that really ensures that New York becomes just vastly predominant uh, among our seaboard cities, but then but then remains predominant even as Chicago springs up and then eventually San Francisco and then even later after that, LA, right, which is still at number two or certainly Houston today. The reason that that originally just shoots it ahead of everything else is that they push and push and push and push and push to build the Erie Canal, which is going to connect the Hudson River, right, which goes which flows south into New York Harbor. They're going to connect the Hudson River to the Great Lakes via central New York State. And this is pushed from New York City. It's going to benefit places like where Joseph Smith grew up in upstate New York, but it's it's pushed from New York City. And what that's going to do is it's going to make sure that the flow of both people and goods to and from the interior of the United States as that opens up generally goes through New York. So significantly, one way to think about this is you probably know the 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 name, if not the precise location in and around Manhattan of Ellis Island. Ellis Island is the last in a series of enormous immigration entry points in New York City. And a bigger one of longer standing actually was Castle Garden. Those places, the reason that you know those and that you don't know the names for similar places in Baltimore where plenty of people came through, particularly Lutherans, or New York, New Orleans, where tons of people flow into kind of the southern Midwest from Missouri, you know, whatever, southern Illinois, these kinds of places, is because New York just dominates everywhere else as an immigration entry point, but it also dominates everywhere else as a point to connect the United States to the rest of the world and for goods to go in and out of. So that is a sort of vision of what is possible that is pushed in New York. And that's that's really the origin of its both numerical and especially its financial dominance. So there are, there are stock exchanges in most major American cities. At this point, they're generally either defunct or they're uh, they're probably digital and and ultimately owned by the New York Stock Exchange. But again, the reason that, you know, you don't know much about the Philadelphia Stock Exchange, but you've heard of Wall Street and the New York Stock Exchange is because what is formed under the Buttonwood tree on Wall Street in the late 1790s becomes absolutely enormous because of the volume of people and goods and services flowing in and out of New York because of the creation of the Erie Canal. So from 1825 onward, New York is going to become a city without any parallel in the entire, not just the United States, but North America. Is there a um, history to the Empire State name? 
the idea of the empire state is derived from this just absolute dominance via the Erie Canal of New York state over every other state. And this is, this is one of these things that is getting to be ironic or hard to imagine or hard to understand because I want to say it was 1950. It's either 1950 or 1960 when California surpasses New York as the most populous state. And even though California is losing population, it's not losing it fast enough for New York, which is also losing population to overtake it. Right. So Florida and Texas are rising. New York and California are going down. But the Empire State thing dates to before the Civil War, when the idea is that New York is the state that controls the rest of the Union because it controls the people and the goods flowing in and out of almost the entirety of the rest of the Union. So that's that's the idea of an empire, that an empire, whether you're thinking of an American empire perhaps in terms of manifest destiny or an empire in terms of New York's sway over everywhere else, that that's why it is the empire state. That's why it is an imperial power. And, and New York state's motto from about that time is excelsior, which means better than all, right? <laughs> None better. <laughs> and you, you know, I mean, if, if you go to, you know, you go to Binghamton today or you go to where my, my grandparents grew up in Western New York. None better feels extremely ironic. I mean, it's it's the Rust Belt, right? Or we're never even had enough industry to rust very much of anything. <laughs> so it's just kind of trees. So it's pretty, but it, it's it's increasingly empty. And so, you know, this is this is being acknowledged at this point. The current governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, acknowledged. What she what is described as out migration recently, but if you go back to New York, certainly in 1923, but even in 1823, just a little bit before the Erie Canal is going to be completed, the idea that New York would be losing population, losing tax revenue, that they would have ads along radio spots on on Florida radio stations to entice people back to New York is unthinkable. So some a lot some of this is slipping. It's not certainly not gone, but it's definitely slipping from what it once was when I think Empire State could be said without a shred of irony. Right. Although the city still retains its place on the world stage. And in some ways, like London, I mean, who cares what's happening in the plebes bad neighborhoods? And if right. it's upstate New York now is the plebes bad neighborhood, it doesn't matter. We still control everything here from Manhattan. <laughs> right. So it's sort of like, you know, the, the poor get poor, the rich get richer in that that divide gets closer to itself in the city um, until the the real upheaval, right? And then they're chopping people's heads off. Um, will New York ever get to that point? Uh, different question, different time. The main, the main issue here being to see that the intentionality of the state's forefathers to be uh, warrior kings, uh, sowers of civilization, um, right. lords of the future, yeah. that had to be there. And, and it, they did it, you know. It it did. And if you follow, I want to say, two-thirds of any important name you might know or might learn about as you learn about something about American history, you will find that he was from New York State or his forefathers were from New York State. And all of that is enabled by the prosperity of New York City. So th that – because originally the idea is not that the city is – parasitical on the rest of the state. So resources and money and time and power flow into the city and stay there. It's that the city's resources and money and time and power will benefit not only itself, but the rest of the state. It was a similar vision with Chicago and Illinois or San Francisco and Northern California or whatever the case may be. Well, so, Which yeah. is where for me, the word city state again has this, and maybe it wasn't clear earlier in the show, a very special meaning that like I really do believe, with the exception of some American states where you have two cities that truly do vie for control over that state, right. most of our states are city-states. They function with a not the capital, actual capital, it's the right. fiscal capital, it's the immigration capital, it's the everything. Right. And then they that place politically just dominates 
the actual capital somehow, you know, culturally. Right. Um, through yeah. really through some of what you're going to get at here with this idea of you know the city has has political control over larger swathes of people. Uh, it has financial control over what goes in and out, which is everything that's nearby, and then it tends to be the source of the broadcast media, even if that's just print. That's right. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great point because even if you think of very rural states even today. So Maine, which has your lowest population density east of the Mississippi or Omaha, Nebraska or Fargo, North Dakota, these these control in a way that's more extended than in the ancient world because our technologies of both getting places and also communicating, everything can move faster because of what are called but are not in fact fossil fuels. So because of the energy that we are able to produce and 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 stabilize and then use, our city states with their hinterlands, their hinterland is just larger than it than it was with Athens yeah, right, or right. That, that's Jerusalem. Yep. yep. But the dynamic is exactly the same. There's a city and there are its hinterlands. And this this works for Portland, Maine, and it works for Portland, Oregon, and it works for Omaha, Nebraska. Right. So when you think about it that way, the reason that we did this series and the way that we did Partly we did Chicago for the sake of Pastor Fisk Yay. <laughs> first, but then we did San Francisco. The reason we're doing New York last is because I want to end the series on a relatively, not a beat necessarily. I'm not sure that's really our forte here, but it, but a positive or at least inquisitive note just to understand the dynamics here. So to use New York City as an example, we talked about a San Francisco nexus of especially how the left seizes and uses power today with San Francisco as the microcosm. If we're going to talk more generically about the dynamics, public dynamics of cities, we got this threefold one and Pastor Fisk kind of introduced it. So I'll go through those respectively, politics, finance, and culture in order is how does New York do this? So politically, it exercises dominance over the rest of New York state, if not really over the United States, because unlike say London, New York City just cannot attain the kind of numerical dominance that would give it immediate and obvious political power, you know, over the rest of the United States. But it can do that with New York State because relative to the rest of the state, there are so many people in New York City. It can do that with New York State. Basically, even if we didn't have representative government, it would still work this way because it worked this way with New York even before we had representative government. So New York is helpful because from, you know, roughly the 16, I mean, the Half Moon explores New York Harbor in 1609 with Henry Hudson. But after that, you know, let's 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 just skip to English time. So we'll say from the 1660s onward, okay, because the English really explore the rest of what's going on. The Dutch, the Dutch have Manhattan and they have a little farm town, a little cow town called Brooklyn. And that, that's like mostly it. They they don't explore enough and they don't bring enough people. Even before there's representative government in New York state, because of the city's influence and in controlling flows of people into the rest of the state and legal title over other things and military forces, the city exercises control at that time through a, an oligarchy, specifically a gentry, which is sort of partially Dutch and partially English. So the Dutch in New York are sort of like the Germans in Pennsylvania. They become Anglicized very early on, right? So if you think about my last name, Kuntz is sort of like the Pennsylvania equivalent of the Roosevelt's. The Roosevelt's are, that's a very Dutch last name, but they're not very Dutch people in any kind of <laughs> way because what happens early on is that New York City creates a gentry, which is English speaking, some of them are Dutch reformed, some of them are Episcopalian. What becomes Columbia University is an Episcopalian school or an Anglican school before the revolution. And that gentry is going to control everything else going on in the rest of the state, whether they're there or not. A lot of them are going to get very wealthy off real estate deals after the revolution when that open, when the rest of the state largely opens up. But they can control it because they not only have more people, that matters more for representative government. But even without representative government, they have they have money and land. If they control that, and they can control that because they have more money, because they're making more money, because 
there's just a lot more going on in New York City than in Schenectady. Well, now they can control Schenectady without even having to live there. So political control over the rest of the state, even apart from, say, how does you know the city of New York basically control what goes on in the New York State Assembly and stuff like that today, even before any of that exists, they have control because they have control over people's livelihoods and how livelihoods are made and how money, especially new money, is going to be made. If you have control over that, you can control everything else, right? So this would be like saying, okay, I want things to go better in Pagosa Springs, Colorado. Maybe I can move there, but you know what? I could actually, it would actually be like more efficient. The The lever would be easier to control if I just took a lever available to me in Denver. And then that would affect Pagosa and Pueblo and all these other places in Colorado. So that's how this works from the first, even before, you know, it's like, wow, if I won New York City, I could control everything in the New York State legislature. So that that political control is it exists the way it does because politics is not just about votes. And sometimes there are no votes at all. Systems can do entirely without voting. It involves control over money and land. Okay. And if you have control over those things, as the gentry does before the revolution, or eventually the Democratic Party machine does in Manhattan with the advent of Tammany Hall, then the rest of it, elections or not elections or whatever, the rest of it just comes with it. And the rest of whatever is in your polity, so in this case, a state, comes with control over money and land in the metropolis. Money, land, and then story, you know, the uh, the media, the uh, the voice. Can these powers be separated? Can you can you have one and not the others? Yeah. Financially, the control that New York exercises is, of course, through Wall Street. So not just the stock exchange and not only the NASDAQ headquarters, but corporations and uh, meetings that have to take place and deals that are made. And, you know, New York's connection to London is important. That's kind of a it's more of a Carol Quigley point, and I've I've done enough Carol Quigley to to suit myself for a while. But connections between financial connections between New York and London are are dense and and remain. the The third kind of control that you get cultural control. That's going to be a lot more indirect before digital media. So, and and it's going to be a lot more indirect before broadcast media. Yeah, it's so through the, it's through the newspaper, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, there there are people reading New York City newspapers in frontier Kansas. Right. Right. Greeley's paper, The Liberator, is popular throughout, you know, abolitionist settlements, including in Kansas. And then that's why there's a Greeley, Colorado and other things. But but your capacity to reach people with a sort of vision of what New York is or what matters in New York or when I was in high school, you know, in rural area, uh, hours and hours from New York, I'm reading The New Yorker, right? That's going to be pretty limited. So this idea that you're going to grow up in Dayton, Ohio, and just long your whole life to move to New York, that's that's really dependent on broadcast media. The, yeah. re- the reason... I see yeah. what you're saying. Like where, where I'm at, I mean, I, I, I get you, but I think I really disagree in the sense that like, it's not about how the New York Times gets to Dayton and some kid in 1914 reads it and wants to move to New York. It's that yeah. he's going to think what the people in New York think over time. If, if the arm and the direction and the flow of the information is from the city to the not city. And, and there is real no going around that. And it didn't, doesn't take digital media to make that power what the priesthood was in the ancient world, right? I mean, isn't this sort of like what religion does for the city-state of Sennacherib? Uh, is that they they go out and they make the proclamations and they tie all of the legal discourse to to things that keep the people in the same story. And and so I think, I mean, I, you're right. Mm-hmm. The the ability mm-hmm. of a small place to control so many minds so quickly. Yeah, we're on steroids right now. Yeah. Um. But the that essential point to the city's power. I think, I think I don't want to underestimate that it is land and money, but the, that land and money allows you to use the fifth generation warfare, which is the story. 
And just because we got fifth generation warfare on on steroids doesn't mean it wasn't always kind of there as part of the the chemistry. Yeah. Okay. So the example that you use from the Bible of Sennacherib, the propaganda is necessary because of the the physical threat in that case to Jerusalem that that he's going to present. New York doesn't have to do that relative to Kansas because it's direct control over Kansas in 1870 does not need to exist. Right. Because okay. it, it can, because it can still, it can still, you're, you're not monetizing prior, particularly to digital media in order to survive as a cultural entity, you do not need to monopolize attention the way that digital media, particularly social media, need to monopolize our attention today. Yeah, agreed. So there's an intensification of these things that are maybe always dynamics, but simply don't need to exist in order for people to do well for themselves or for cities to maintain or even extend power. No, no, no. I, I agree with that. But then you, you don't have to monopolize attention, but you do have to monopolize the information that everyone agrees is true in some way, right? Like they got to all believe you're king. Even if, you know, you're never showing up at their door. Um, uh, the the tax man is going to come. He's going to ask, right? Why does the okay. sheriff end up at the gates? Yeah. Okay. So I, I, I do think that this is, this is fairly drastically different for particularly an ancient state like Assyria or a modern state, particularly a monarchy, but even a republic like France after 1789, at least most of the time, that has a metropolis versus a polity that is that is both democratic to one degree or another, but especially that is spread out as the United States is. So mm -hmm. think about the example that I used earlier of the city. So when my when my grandfather was growing up. When they said, we're going to the city, they didn't even mean Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They meant Morgantown, West Virginia, which was closer. <laughs> okay. So that's like nothing. Maybe the only reason that anyone knows that is because West Virginia University is there. Or you didn't know that because it doesn't matter, right? Go Buckaroos? I don't even know. Right. What's the, what is uh, there? They're, they're the Mountaineers. Mountaineers. I did know that. Yeah. It's like Montani a Buckaroo. Berry. Yeah. Like they're always free. So <laughs> so it's good. But, um, but that's what they meant by the city. So the, this... I think what I think is, is a consistent historical dynamic of a city with its hinterlands doesn't, certainly prior to broadcast media, but I think especially prior to digital media, you do not need in order to flourish as a city to monopolize attention somewhere other than your hinterlands. The idea of the New York Times, for example, as the newspaper of record was historically shared with several other newspapers. In the same way that America had not a single prestigious symphony orchestra, we had four, right? So New York and Philly and Cleveland and San Francisco all have these, you know, these are the big four orchestras in the United States. I mean, and that's sort of a made up thing. But the point is, you don't, you don't have to pretend that you are a world city. Mm. That idea, I think, is much more important where the messaging needs to be uniform and continuous in order to maintain control, as it is, for example, with an ancient city-state, especially in Mesopotamia, with a king who would claim divine or semi-divine status, or with a modern polity, modern relatively recently, right, like London or Paris, where you're trying to maintain control over something that a couple hundred years ago was not really all that unified. You can get a very interesting book about, I can't remember the title right off the top of my head, but an interesting book, I think it might be called The Invention of French, something like that, about how French, quote unquote, is not a language that particularly almost anyone outside of like the, the near orbit of Paris spoke at one point. <laughs> they're not, they're barely mutually intelligible. That's a, that's a function of Paris projecting itself onto the rest of the United States in the same way that the, the death of local accents in the modern United States is a function of broadcast media. So what you're dealing with there, I think, is that we are moving toward an increasingly, I think, monarchical way of life in modern America 
as a function of broadcast media because our cities are now behaving, even if they don't have continuous kings or dynastic kings, they're behaving the way particularly autocratic monarchies behaved in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. You continually have to be told, here's who's in control. Here's what they think. Here's what they want. I mean, I I know that people find this odd or hard to believe, but it, it would be entirely possible if you lived and died in, I don't know, Lawrence, Kansas or something prior to like 1960 to have no idea what is going on in New York City and never to have to care. Just didn't matter. And certainly before the federal government's growth, it didn't matter what was happening in Washington either. So part I, I think partly because of our form of government, but especially because of our geographic size and diffusion, cities simply did not matter on a national level. You know, Omaha mattered for the area around Omaha, and it sort of still only does. Or it matters for the rest of Nebraska, but it doesn't matter for South Dakota, really, right? So that's a New York is is our first city that becomes, and this is why I think Empire is such a it's such it's so telling that they picked that, right? Because this is a this is kind of a small time republic, <laughs> and they're like, nope, we are the center of an empire. <laughs> and that eventually gets reflected in the way that their media behave, where they are the newspaper of record or, you know, the headquarters of ABC or the headquarters of the NBC network or whatever, because that those are part of there. There are media that are appropriate to empire. And then there are media much smaller time, much more limited in their interests, much more limited in their spread that are appropriate not just to a republic, but to something that is just geographically enormous. And there's a point at which our media begin to behave imperially. So uh, just a few minutes left here in this hour, yeah. uh, the city's disarray in the palm of your hand. So this involves something that I notice, first of all, with TV, but now it is sort of brought into everyone's life potentially all the time via smartphones is that particularly the form of control that I think is most insidious. So, which is the cultural form because that, that leaves you no, no freedom of spirit to which I think is connected, not only freedom of thought, which is actually essential for the kinds of innovation that made New York what it was. I mean, you you wouldn't be allowed partly because you would be a you know a white male if you were trying to imitate Cornelius Vanderbilt or John Rockefeller and and create some kind of burgeoning empire uh, today. So you've got Elon Musk, and he's not involved with New York. But the problem is that as the city's cultural control spreads, it creates, as empires always do in their subject populations greater and greater and greater uniformity of spirit. You must worship these gods, or you must at least give obeisance to the gods of the imperial city. And optimally, you will use those gods exclusively. So no matter where you go, people will sound the way that they sound when they are on the radio broadcast from New York City or the TV broadcast or the media form whatever it might be today, video, audio, whatever, uh, produced out of New York City. So whatever the empire wants will become de rigueur for everybody. The reason I say cities disarray is because New York City, especially as we're going to talk about in the next episode, is in a fair amount of disarray today. It is, It is not imperially confident, and it is the metropolitan city of a state that is declining in a variety of ways. I don't think it's necessarily terminal or something, but it's not regally imperial either. So what you're getting, I think, is very often a reflection of the kinds of incoherent, confused, and somewhat scary lives led by people in our metropolitan areas. And your consumption of those things, you know, so let, I, I'm always interested in these things. I'll give you an example, right? 
let's say that you're going to watch a horror movie. Well, you live in a nice place. You have a nice family. What what involvement do you have with horror? So you're going to watch this horror movie. So you look up the biography of the screenwriter and the screenwriter is a somewhat lonely individual once divorced after an early marriage and he lives somewhere in Brooklyn. And so the things that are going on in his soul that are being imprinted by the alienation and the sadness, which are sort of part of his life necessarily, the way that he feels when he's on the subway at a certain hour and Maybe he feels safe and maybe he doesn't, but he paid his fare, but most of the other people on this subway car did not. He watched them jump the fare. Okay, so he feels a certain way. Horror comes much more naturally to him than it does to you. But you're consuming what he has produced because he is in the metropolis and can get the things inside of his soul produced, and you cannot. There's a way in which you just functionally don't matter as much as he does. Do you want to take that in? I mean, do you do you want that guy in your living room, right? So something that we often talk about on the show, I think we should begin to think more about in personally or, or geographically more specific terms is that if I wouldn't live somewhere – it might be interesting what people think who are there or what people feel who are there. That might be interesting. But do I want to fill my life with the things from a place that I would never live or I certainly would never put my family in? I mean, do I want that? So I think these are all things to consider. Also, if you are in a better place, why don't you try to get something produced such as this guy has? You know, I mean, we talked about the history of Hollywood. They originally go there to escape New York City <laughs> so they can escape the grasp of Thomas Edison. Right. But it does change film forever that they flee. Right. And that they have their own prerogatives and ideas and, and freedoms. So maybe you could make something like that. I, I think that thinking about New York City, not just as a certain exemplar of the way that cities operate, especially in the United States, but also thinking about it as a, a place that induces certain things in people. You know, why why is Tim Keller have to be your pattern for everything? Why do you have to take in the rage and the alienation, which would come naturally if you lived somewhere that you didn't really know anybody or where you were always a stranger no matter where you were, unless it were a private gathering? Why be controlled by those things? I think that people just don't think enough about who they're inviting into their lives when they, especially when they consume media. They are always watching. I wish I had um, a proverb to wrap this up, but instead I just got a little Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Uh, bad information is worse than no information. And do not listen to anyone you cannot penalize for lying to you. You have found a brief history of power. You know where to find us, or you wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School 
provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith, in the beautiful inland northwest.